You're listening to 3CR Radio. You're an In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, US historian Dr. Louis Dean Valencia Garcia returns to talk about Trump, the far right and the US election. And later, Kirsty Miller joins us to talk about the world rugby ban on transgender women players. 3CR. While Dr. Louis Dean Valencia Garcia is an assistant professor of digital history at Texas State University in Austin. He's also a senior fellow and head of the history research unit for the analysis of the radical right. And Louis begins our interview by discussing how the far right has been organising for election day since Donald Trump told them to stand by. Well, that's the million dollar question. I think um, a lot of groups are quite literally doing that, standing by to see what happens. And I think that's a little bit of the tension right now. Um, it's not necessarily knowing how this all is, how the elections are going to play out, and also not knowing how either Trump will react or how the far right groups will react if he wins or loses for that matter. Are you expecting vigilantes to be terrorizing voters on election day? I think that there's been a lot of fear of that. So far, I haven't seen any um, anything like that with the early voting. So um, that um, depends state by state. But I can say that at least from what I've seen, it seems to be pretty normal voting procedures. There is um, a lot of social distancing that's happening when people go vote. So the lines are a bit longer or take a bit uh, longer to get through. But as far as what happens with Election Day, it's anybody's guess, really, at this point. Um, I think that there's sort of the fear that a lot of people have. I know I went and voted this past weekend and there was a security guard, which I don't think I've ever noticed a security guard at um, an elections polling place before that I've uh, noticed offhand. So that was a little bit different, but I haven't seen anything that seems intimidating. So we'll see if that changes with election day. There's been a lot of publicity about the reduction in Texas of the drop-off boxes for voting. To what extent has the governor of Texas and the Republican Party been trying to suppress the vote? I think it's a very much so an intense effort. Um, the fact that a county in uh, West Texas ha that has very few people that live in it has the same amount of the third largest city in the United States, it's kind of disturbing in a lot of ways. I think that it might be a miscalculation also on um, the Republican Party's uh, platform as well, just because, honestly, you don't know who would use that uh drop-in ballot otherwise. So I think that there might be sort of a big open question as to who's going to end up showing up at the election uh, polls in the first place. But I think it, either way, it's, a, it's real damage to democracy and trying to encourage people to participate in a democratic system. How dangerous would Trump be if he got a second term? I think he'd be unhinged, and that's kind of a personal um, opinion, but also observation in that he's, as of late, very much so been going against uh, even his own experts uh, more so than normal. Uh, and I think that's sort of him feeling more empowered. 
Um, I don't know if it's the steroids in his uh, COVID treatment, but he does seem much more so empowered to do as he will. And I think that's the biggest fear that I would have out of it. Another term of Trump would be him actually feeling that he has no checks on his power. Much of your mainstream media has labelled Trump authoritarian. You, of course, have studied fascism. You're a fascism expert. Will America slide into a fascist regime if Donald Trump is re-elected? I think it's safe to say that uh, the United States is already sliding into a fascist regime. So I would imagine that continuing. And I guess I mentioned this last time, so I don't want to sound like a bit of a broken record, but the fact that we have concentration camps um, across the United States amongst the border and very real race laws that are being used to disenfranchise voters, I think is just another sign of it. Tell us how you see uh, the suppression of minority groups in terms of uh, their capacity to vote how you see that manifesting in places like Texas? I think that there's a real question as to sort of what will happen with um, particularly uh, marginalized groups, historically marginalized groups that might, uh, I think that for the first time, there's this sort of sense that maybe this is the year that those groups are actually going to be the deciding vote. So I do have a little bit of hope in that sense, because I think that there have been a lot of organizing efforts that have been going forward that have trying to organize those traditionally marginalized groups. Now, I don't know how effective that's going to be when considering all the efforts to keep them marginalized. But I do think that I've seen more efforts to uh, enfranchise typically marginalized or oppressed groups this year. So I'm hoping for better turnout on that sense, but I don't know. So I'm an historian, right? So a lot of it is a bit of a guessing game. I was rereading this book um, uh, earlier this semester, um, earlier this, I guess it was in September, uh, who voted for Hitler. And one of the one of the things that was most obvious with the elections that preceded Hitler's rise to power was sort of the middle class vote for Hitler. And I think that that's sort of one of the places that we need to watch out here as well is who is going to be the deciding vote. And it's usually people who are anxious about their place in society. So this book, Who Voted for Hitler, by Richard Hamilton, um, it basically goes into this idea that working class people who were trying to see themselves as bourgeois were part of the vote, but but not as much so as the people who were from the middle class, the bourgeoisie, who were afraid of falling into the working class. And so I think that that's partially what we also saw with Donald Trump's rise is that anxiety in the middling classes. I think for the most part, what you're going to find is people who are already in danger um, by Trump are going to, by and large, vote for Biden, even if they don't think of him as their ideal candidate. 
those who feel relatively secure in their position or that might not necessarily see this as the end of the world for them because of their privilege, because of their societal status, are going to be voting differently potentially. And that's, I guess, the big question is what happens with that group. Speaking of groups, one American group that's getting a lot of publicity here is QAnon, which of course is spreading globally as well. The conspiracy theories seem completely unbelievable and over the top, but the bit that leaves me scratching my head is the fact that they see Donald Trump, of all people, as being, as being the saviour in all of this. How on earth do you think that situation has happened, where, where Donald Trump is seen as almost like this biblical creature that's going to save these poor children from from pedophiles i think part of it is so i think that there are different um different contingencies within the QAnon. i hesitate to call it movement but in to some degree it is people who are acting uh based on these conspiracy theories and i think that donald trump at the center is part of his own making He does, uh, when asked about QAnon in the most recent uh, town hall meeting that he had, he didn't deny it. And he very adamantly tries to start talking about uh, human trafficking, but in a way that you know that he's not really interested in the issue per se, um, because obviously, yes, there is human trafficking, but it's with the purpose of using it against his opposition. And I see it a lot of as scapegoating or fear-mongering more than actually um, a concern about sex trafficking. And I think that one of the sort of issues that we also see here is those people who are seeing him as sort of this savior, it's very much so a fascist tendency to have this idea that there is a father figure who's going to save the country, whether it's from the sex traffickers or from uh, other groups, I think it it falls into the realm of what we typically see under fascist regimes, Uh, this sort of macho strongman figure. And I think Trump really very much so wants to make himself into that. And these conspiracy theories play right into his hands. Of course, the Nazis did have their own private army, basically, the brown shirts. And it's almost as if Trump is trying to incite various vigilante groups like, you know, far-right groups to kind of be his own kind of private army and to perhaps uh, rise up if he does lose the election. How concerned are you about the prospect of domestic terrorism in the U.S. from these groups if Trump loses or it's a disputed election? Yeah, um, I guess it's sort of one of those things where it's already happening, right? These, uh, the Proud Boys, One, Boogaloo's, um, all of these sort of far-right groups and a lot of other fringe far-right groups as well that are more localized have been taking action. So it's not that this is sort of a theoretical thing that might happen in the world where Trump wins again. It's already happening. And I think that's a really important point to make here is that it's, it's here, it's present, and it is a very real threat to have these far-right groups that are threatening to do something. 3CR. You're listening to an interview with Dr. Louis Jean Valencia Garcia from Texas State University 
on 3CRs in your face. How concerned are you as a queer person about the impacts of Amy Coney Barrett's appointment to the Supreme Court insofar as queer rights are concerned? Terrified, I think is one way to put it. I think that one way that I've tended to think a lot about the rise of Trump and this whole era is, uh, one, it's a rejection of the last decade. But in the last decade, what are the things that we've seen? Um, the decade plus. So we've seen a uh, black president, sorry, within the last 12 years or so. Uh, we've seen uh, very real uh, efforts made that have brought uh, trans rights to the forefront in the United States, brought queer rights to the forefront, that have brought women's rights to the forefront, that have brought people of color's rights to the forefront. And I think that what we see with Trump is a rejection of this more pluralistic world that people were putting very um, real effort into trying to create. And so whenever I think about the Trump era, it's not just that there's this uh, anti-immigrant fascist uh, that has taken over the White House. It's also more so also the rejection of a world that would have been more pluralistic or that many people were trying to make more pluralistic. And I see that as part of what we think about with the Trump era and the Supreme Court uh, justice uh, nomination is an attempt to uh, backtrack that, to pull back the rights that queer people have either earned or had recognized in the last 10 years within the United States. Trump, of course, has unusually had the opportunity to appoint three Supreme Court justices. That's um, an incredibly high amount. That's a third of the US Supreme Court. Republican evangelicals must be rubbing their hands together with glee. Indeed, that's probably why they're backing Trump. Do you think that's why the GOP has enabled Trump? so that they could get their people on the Supreme Court and influence U.S. policy for you know decades to come? I think that's absolutely the strategy. And I, uh, it's not even just my opinion. They've said it fairly frequently. Uh, the Trump administration has been working with uh, the Senate in particular, but also with other groups like the Federalist Society to pick... Uh, justice nominees and also federal court judges as well that are not just conservative but dangerously conservative Um, and I think that that's been a very real effort not just this year but over the entirety of the Trump administration to uh, to put people in positions of power that would reject a more democratic pluralistic world Since we last spoke, Texas has seen a huge surge in coronavirus cases. What's it been like for you, Louis, living in that environment? I think it's interesting because sometimes it seems like uh, people are living in totally different uh, worlds. Uh, I I know of some people who are living their life. They wear their masks. They might go out. They do things. Um, mostly they're having to work, uh, uh, I think either because they have no other option or they are 
more or less locked down. I think what's most disturbing is the fact that so many public schools have reopened and not really given a lot of teachers the option to work from home or um, have put them into dangerous situations. And I think this happens not just a just with teachers, but it's happening across the board where there's this idea that uh, it's okay to throw the employee as sacrificial lambs so that the economy doesn't collapse. And all of this is in the midst of uh, House and Senate's um, sort of just abandoned effort for many months now to actually come up with some sort of package that would allow for people to stay home if there was a serious government effort to do so. Yes, that's been extraordinary how they haven't been able to achieve that, yet they have been pushing through these uh, these Senate hearings. Right. And it's, I think, also what is sort of disturbing, um, at least in Texas, is that you see a lot of institutions, uh, public institutions that have really relied on the private sector or individuals to actually do something, but very little organization coming from uh, any sort of government administrations uh, beyond maybe the mayor's office and the county uh, offices. But even those, there's very little that they can do on some levels as far as uh, giving people the funds to be able to stay home and work from home, all those sort of things that would actually protect and prevent spread. Um, I do know people, uh, know of people at the very least, that still believe this is all a hoax um, or people that believe that it's not that bad. And this is all uh, echoing Trump's own words. So it's not surprising either. It's interesting because the numbers in the U.S. are so vast and so many states are still surging, like you must be able to see that human side of the devastation of this disease. Oh, absolutely. I I think that uh, virtually everyone that I've known um, in recent months at least knows somebody that has gotten coronavirus. I was just speaking to somebody today whose grandmother got it from work. Um, and one of the challenges is that a lot of these uh employers are not telling their employees who is infected. And so there's not really any sort of contact tracing happening beyond if somebody by happenstance remembers that they spoke to so-and-so. And so there is no system in place to help uh, an individual know if they've been exposed or not and how to best protect them uh, quickly. And I think that's one of the other dangers here is people are being put in work situations where they have no way of knowing if they've been exposed until they themselves are exposed. So it sounds like, you know, capitalism is really enabling the spread of the coronavirus. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's part of what we see here is sort of the, it's, it is the old problem of capitalism, right? To keep the engine burning, you might burn out the employees, the workers, Um, But at the same time, what we're seeing is sort of this idea that um, the wealthier are getting more wealthy with all this. People are judging sort of their stability uh, economically in a way that doesn't really make a lot of sense. It's survival at this point. 
And I think that capitalism, and I hate to be like uh, hitting this dead horse, but capitalism is certainly to blame for uh, why we have this country that is basically throwing the workers under the bus. And finally, Louis, what is your prediction for the election result? Will Donald Trump be tossed out of office and will it be because of the coronavirus? So uh, just going back a second to 2016, I was fairly certain that Trump was going to win. Um, All the signs seemed to be going that way to me. And I mentioned it to several friends and colleagues at the time that all thought I was crazy for saying so. I think what we're going to see, and I hate being the I hate predicting things because I'm an historian and usually we look at the past. So who am I to pull out my crystal ball? But what we do know is that Trump has said very specifically that he's willing to question the election results. And I think that if he loses, he will continue to question those results. And a lot of it will depend upon uh, not just sort of the popular uprising if his Proud Boys are standing by, as he ordered. But it's also going to depend upon the Supreme Court and the justices that are in power by then. So Amy Coney Barrett could very well be one of the deciding uh, votes on whatever issue arises. Trump's also very specifically said that he wants a third term, right? So which is illegal. It's unconstitutional. So the type of person who would say that uh, he is already looking forward to a third term is probably going to not take losing very well. And I think anybody who's followed Trump at all these past few years would see that as a possibility. Um, So I think regardless, even if Biden were to win, and I think the votes are going to come in later than normal, Uh, we're going to see something potentially happen. And I also am worried about what happens between the election day and January, uh, whenever the whoever becomes president is reinstated or not. Um, And I think that that's one of the other fears is, what does an unhinged president look like? And I think we're getting to that point. And of course, authoritarian regimes are often at their most dangerous in their final months. If Trump knows he's on borrowed time and he's going to be tossed out of office and potentially facing an orange jumpsuit, I imagine his desperation would mean that he's likely to possibly try anything to to not transfer power. Right. And I think that he's going to make every effort to try to contest the election if he does lose. And I think Biden has to be prepared for that. And I think it's going to be a very real question of what happens with the U.S. government. Is How does the Secret Service react? How does um, the military react? I think all of these questions are actual, uh, actually on the table. And I don't know the last time that this has really been an issue beyond maybe the American Civil War where there is a question of, will there be a peaceful transition in power? One thing I want to ask you, Louis, is, of course, uh, the gay community ran a wonderful campaign, you know, like a a take, if you like, on the Proud Boys, and people were posting, you know, wonderfully gay-positive memes and images on on social media. 
can we expect the backlash towards the gay community from groups like the Proud Boys because of that, do you think? I really hope that it just shamed them, just so much so. Uh, I think the word pride has for very a very long time been a word that's incredibly connected to the queer community. And so my hope is that maybe the Proud Boys will change their name. Maybe that's a little bit of a naive hope. But I do think that that sort of stigma really hurts toxic masculinity in a way that I can see that they were they were really, really burning after that. So, you know, uh, I think those types of efforts, if nothing else, whenever you want to go after a fascist, it's fairly efficient to target their toxic masculinity and make them feel a little bit, uh, I guess, less than. But of course, that's all based upon their own ideas of toxic masculinity. Louis-Dean Valencia-Garcia, it's been an absolute pleasure again chatting with you on 3CR. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Love it. 
reporter's head there. After closing, while Kirsty Miller is a sports inclusion expert from Broken Hill in New South Wales, and Kirsty begins our interview by discussing why world rugby has banned transgender women players. Well, definitely not from a needs basis, James. Um, we've got to think world rugby has accepted trans girls for many, many years now, back since like the 1990s. And so it wasn't a needs base. There wasn't a, a, an abundance of injuries occurring. In, in actual fact, um, not one injury was recorded from a transgender um, player. Um, there was no, none of the federations calling out to World Rugby saying we need to ban trans girls because with the ban that's come in, in actual fact, most of the major rugby federations have gone against the World Rugby stance, i.e. Australian rugby, New Zealand, um, England, England um, Canada and USA. Oh, my God, the best thing that's come out of USA is USA rugby. That They've had hundreds of USA girls get online and make videos and just, yeah, all these federations have called it out and said we didn't want this. So why it happened, why it happened was basically pushed from the UK mob, the UK gender-critical turfs. That's where it came from. And unfortunately, they were the ones invited to the, the work group in London when it started, and, and we had known hate groups in Fair Play for Women. We had um, not one single transgender female rugby player, rugby official, rugby coach in the whole world went and partook on this this um, review of the guidelines. So pretty disgraceful stuff and, and but you know, a polar opposite response from the from the federations all around the world. So, you know, I think the line in the the sand's been drawn in this. They've done it so badly, World Rugby, that, you know, I'm overwhelmed with the support. World Rugby must realise they're out in a limb, that they're isolated. What can the other groups do to try and implement change on the on the international scale? Well, the World Rugby decision is not going to be upheld. Like it will be challenged either in the courts or it's going to be a, a such a major revolt by the the federations all around the world that World Rugby is going to have to rescind this, James, be, because the World Rugby policy that they developed, they didn't go and do any new studies. People think they've done all these new studies on transgender AFL players. Number one, they can't even tell you how many trans girls play the game. Number two, they cannot even tell you the weight, the height, the, the, the measure that a trans person can run or no statistics whatsoever were presented in London. And the 11 studies that they reviewed, they weren't studies that were redone. They were these three people that reviewed these 11 studies on transgender people, none of them athletes whatsoever, the ones that the OIC policy was built on, and they've written a review on these and given their opinion. And that was the first stage of what they've done. The second stage is they've merely, they've merely just compared a cisgender male rugby player against a cisgender female rugby player. We know there's massive overlaps in the sexes. So it's, it, they've done it so badly, absolutely so badly, uh, every sport now in the world will, will this is sort of the example not to do. So they haven't based it on science at all. It's been based on prejudice. The only girls that are being banned at the moment, James, is the elite level of the game, okay? 
you know what? There's never been a transgender rugby player even make the elite level of the game. So, and then there's been four World Cups. There's been in the Olympics, um, all the countries in, in playing internationals, not one single tra transgender or transsexual girl has ever made a national team for any country at any time. So they're banned now, even though they've never played the game. So nothing's changed at the moment until we got a couple of really good trans girls that may make the elite level one day. So that sort of shows the ridiculous of the, the argument, James. They're banning people that don't exist. What are some of the myths about trans players that you want to debunk? Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> that we just men, you know, playing the game. Well, I'll use myself as an example because I was an elite athlete. I was a rugby league player and a rugby union player, a world champion athlete as a male, and I actually played first grade rugby league in the front row in my last year before transitioning at about 103 kilograms, um, built like um, Cement Gillespie from, from the old Bulldog days, and, and I used to tackle like him well. Within um, 12 months, James, I'd, I'd lost nearly half my weight. Um, my, my hemoglobin levels had reduced by 15%. This is just in the first 12 months. Um, in 12 months, I'd lost 11 seconds over 100 metres swimming. I went from a 59 seconds to a 70. So, you know, by all means, men shouldn't be playing women's rugby, but Kirsty isn't a man anymore. You know, she's now 59 kilos ringing wet. She's got osteoporosis, a minus 3.1 level. I've got a specialist appointment tomorrow. So, but I'm banned because I'm a physical threat, James. And there's international rugby players, females, 130, 140 kilograms and exceptional athletes, you know. So it's based on prejudice. It's based on absolutely no science, no injuries. Nothing at all. And, and to top it all off, no transgender female rugby person was involved, whatever, and, and, and the final nail, nail of the coffin was no trans hate groups were in the room. So, you know, how bad does it get? <laughs> You're listening to an interview with sports inclusion expert Kirsty Miller on 3CRs in your face. Warren was the biggest on the team. Warren was the strongest on the team. Uh, one year in, in rugby league, I, I gained the, the first um, player in, in, in rugby league to do a 1,000 tackles in a game. Um, but Warren isn't Kirsty anymore. You know, Kirsty now is 59 kilos, a size six with F-cup breasts. You know, I've got osteoporosis. I, I haven't had testosterone in my body for 20 years now. I've got a specialist appointment tomorrow because I've got an urgent health need to get testosterone back into my body. So, you know, by all means, ban Warren, but don't ban Kirsty because I'm not Warren anymore. And that's what World Rugby are trying to advocate that, you know, nothing changes a transgender athlete. Well, I'm an XY physiology, James, unfortunately. My, my single hormone in my body Androgen is testosterone, the same as a male, the same as uh, XY intersex girl. That is the only hormone naturally occurring in our body, 
and my level is 0 0.01. I ask everyone that's, forget the word transgender, forget the word Kirsty or Hannah Mouncey or Rachel McKinnon, go and have a look at the, the health repercussions of what happens to a male that suffers, um, goes under androgen deprivation therapy treatment, like a male that's suffering prostate cancer treatment genes. Now, the health consequences of that are absolutely dramatic on the, on the body. There's about 200 different complications to the body, and none of them are, are performance-enhancing. Things like loss of sexual um, and mental health, complete muscle atrophy, um, increase in fat levels, accelerated bone loss, premature ageing, large drop in hemoglobin levels. You, you get in the picture here, James, nothing performance-enhancing cardiovascular health, um, then it then relates into sport. You, you have elevated core body temperature, um, reduced stamina, reduced strength. And, and there's no ifs or buts on this. Um, an XY body without testosterone, whether it be a man, whether it be a, a an intersex girl, or whether it be Kirsty, I'm not immune, you know, that, that's... It controls 250 things in my body. So go beyond the science of trans and, and go and have a look what happens to males um, going under androgen deprivation therapy treatment and, and have a look at the health consequences of males that suffer hypogonadism. And now, if it wasn't such a big deal, James, if it didn't, have, didn't affect sporting performance so badly in an XY physiology, why does water and every Olympic sport and the AFL and the NRL, anyone under the water, why do they allow males with low testosterone to be granted a therapeutic use exemption to be granted testosterone supplementation? They do that, James, because if a man doesn't get that, they won't be playing sport at all. They won't be getting out of bed and they'll be suffering all the health um, complications that I just explained, the same as I am now. So... Forget Hannah, forget Kirsty, forget the word transgender, and go and have a look at the science. The science exists, and it's existed for many, many decades. You know, that there's not many studies specifically to transgender people in sport. In actual fact, there's one. There's absolutely only one in the world, and that was done by Joanna Harper. And that was the only study World Rugby kept out of their studies because it supported inclusion. The other 11 studies they included, not one single one of the 800 transgender people were a transgender athlete. They didn't assess athletic ability in any sport or rugby. And, and James, the thing is they didn't have to go down the path of a blanket ban. A blanket ban is way above and beyond what's required because in every single trans policy, the requirement of reduced testosterone is only ever the minimum requirement. And under all those policies, the time can be extended if there's still a disparity in either strength, endurance, speed, or physique, which we saw with Hannah Mouncey. And we've seen right now, we've got a trans um, rugby player up at Grafton who's just had her application rejected and they decided she needed more time to minimise. So we've already got safeguards in all these policies and I, if, if they still don't believe that were rugby, what I would have suggested was to adopt a similar approach to the AFL, where the AFL 
above and beyond the testosterone, they go and assess certain characteristics of the trans person before they get so get approval. So things like the trans person athlete's height is taken, the weight, they look at their, their maximum bench press, they look at their squat, they look at their 20-metre um, sprint time, their vertical jump, they get um, three match raw GPS data, a two-kilometre run time, and once they go all through that, James, then the time can still be extended if they don't feel like, you know, they still feel like there's a disparity. And very interesting thing, South Africa rugby back in 2011, they did a very similar testing on their elite female players. So it's not something new. And, and I had a look at all the average general and the same things that AFL check, body mass, height, weight, 10 meter speed, 40 meter jump, bench press, squat, all those things have been tested, so they've got a baseline. And each one of the criteria, James, I'm at the bottom of the scale. I'm at the complete bottom of the scale. So, you know, it's got nothing to do with safety, nothing to do with fairness. It's got everything to do with what you said at the start, prejudice. You mentioned research into trans athletes. What kind of research do you think the Australian government should be funding so that we can better support trans athletes? You, you know what, James? It's impossible to do a study on a whole group of any athletes, whether it be cisgender men, whether it be cisgender women, whether it be um, whether it be transgender girls or transgender men. They're asking the wrong questions, James. If we've got to go back and, and try and if, if they're just going to measure transgender people and, and they want to actually do it right, they have to do it right, okay? So it's got to be a good study. So to actually get the data of any group of people, everyone would have to live in a lab for the time, right? Out. They would have to live in a lab and go through and have the same diet. They would have to have the same weather, the same access to coaching, the same the, the whole myriad, James, is impossible to do. And if they, they, they never look at androgen, um, they only look at volume testosterone levels, and, and there's still no science on that. And, and they, you know, they don't even know the difference between the male and the female sports performance teams. Like, how are they going to know about trans people? We're the, we're the least amount of people in sport. So I really think they're asking the wrong questions. This type of thing has got to be on a case-by-case basis. So what I believe, if World Rugby comes up with, like I said, they've done on the South African girls, where they've tested all the same things they test us as girls in AFL, if they give us an arbitrary line that we have to meet, why not test us? And, and that's the cutoff, James, you know? That is the only way to do it. It's got to be an individual basis. So I, for policies in the future, I believe trans girls that never went through a puberty, and this is why we maintain just the male-female category as we have now, but ones that do not go through a male puberty, they they compete as they are, okay? A girl like me, I believe it should be a minimum 12 months and then go through the assessment similar to the AFL, but that is a minimum time which can be extended. And, and we've done that through every sport before, James, we still haven't had an Olympic um, athlete in eight Olympic Games. We've never had an elite world title or world championship by a transgender athlete. We've never had a Grand Slam in 
tennis. We've never had a golf major. We've never had – there's not a transgender girl ranked in the top 10,000 of the 100 metres running or swimming. So, you know, case by case has definitely got to be the way to go. And, and you know, I don't believe that doing further tests is really going to do much. They should be looking at, you know, ways of improving women's sport, how to breach the massive inequalities at all levels of sport. They should be looking at diversity at the top of these boards, you know. They should be looking at, you know, human right breaches, which they're doing to women. Transgender athletes have not competed at the elite level of sport. Um, there's a lot more problems in sport beyond transgender people like drug cheats and, and, and you know, it's really been blown out of water. This is total prejudice against transgender people. We've talked about the uh, South African athlete, Caster Semenya, and the ban against them. What can you update us about that case? Well, if Caster Semenya runs 100 and 200 metres, she's a female in, in Sebastian Coe's eyes. But if she runs 201 metres, she's now male. So I'd suggest that every female in the world go to their doctor this week because not many people know. James, you probably wouldn't know your testosterone level. Not many people do. Now, Sebastian Coe is effectively saying 4.99, you're a girl. Five nanomoles, you're a boy. There's going to be about 10% of the girls tomorrow, if they go and get their tea, they're going to be considered a male in Sebastian Coe's eyes. So um, she's lost her case through the um, in Switzerland. They, they And I... They didn't have the authority to overturn it. So now Casta is going to have to remove herself from those events and it'll be a long, drawn-out process in, in the International Human Rights Court. So that could take three, four, five years, James. And effectively kill her career. Well, I think there'll be social change before that occurs or changes will be um, forced upon the, the partners of the, you know, the commercial sponsors of these organisations. Yeah, so it's going to take one hero to go to a, a human right court somewhere to, to do this. But, you know, like with the rugby thing, you know, when I first heard the, the, the ban of the trans girls, I thought, oh, my God, are we going to have to take this to court? I don't think we're going to have to. The, the, the social response from all around the world, they've spoken up for, for us trans girls. I, I've never felt so supported as a trans athlete. Like rugby union, without a doubt, has become my favourite sport in the whole world. These girls don't want to be stereotype rugby girls. They love breaking down the stereotypes. They love smashing down the barriers. They're very proud that they play a game, one of the very few games in the world, that they play the same rules as the men. World rugby picked on the wrong girls and the wrong sport. They picked on the wrong sport. And I don't believe any other sport in the world we would have had national federations go against the global federation like we have. Let's hear it again. We've got Australian rugby. We've got the Kiwis. We've got England. We've got USA. We've got Canada. And I bet you by the time, um, by the end of the year, we'll have all the major countries in the world banning the, the World Cup ban. But, you know, some great news happened in Australia here, James, recently. With the, Fantastic. Yeah, we had um, just about 10 days ago, we had eight major sports in Australia release um, some policies in Australia for their for their sports, and these were major major um, sports in Australia. That and also another um, twelve major sports in Australia made a commitment that they're going to develop policies. But you know, I really, really, really want to praise these sports for um, 
given it a crack. They, they've done eight policies. They're eight very different policies. Um, there's some that I don't think are perfect, but they're an absolutely great starting point. Tell us about the 12 sports. Absolutely. Well, I'll, I'll tell you the ones that redeveloped. Let's give them all credit. The AFL, who I've been known to bag, um, you know, they updated their policy, and, and I think it's a good thing. They've now got the community level and the elite level. So well done, AFL. Um, Cricket Australia, they announced another um, update to their guidelines. Hockey Australia announced their guidelines. Netball Australia, they announced their new guidelines. And this is at the SCG, in, in, you know, in the middle of the SCG, these were announced. Rugby Australia, what a huge – this coming out of like a day after the, the, the rugby world governing body banned us, Australian rugby stood up once again for the transgender community. Um, Tennis Australia, you know, we've got 44 years of history of trans girls being able to play tennis. Australian tennis didn't view trans girls as a threat, so they've developed a policy. Um, the NRL Touch Football, they've developed a policy, pretty much a self-ID policy. Good on you, NRL. Unisports, Water Polo Australia, and they're the ones that announced the policies, James. I'm getting you know, um, some, some uh, shivers down my spine hearing that, you know, and then we've got Australian Athletics. We've got um, Australian Bowls. We've got Australian Golf, Australian Gymnastics, Diving Australia, Australian Judo, Australia Softball, Australia Squash, Triathlon, Surf Lifesaving, and uh, Swimming Australia. So, you know, like that's pretty amazing stuff from Australia leading the way, definitely leading the way in, in transport. That's 20 sports will have announced policies in, in the 12 months to go along with the federal guidelines last year, you know. So, wow, what a, what a time. You know, Australia leading the way. As someone who's dedicated many years to trans inclusion in sport, you must be feeling like these policy shifts are, you know, evidencing all the hard work that you put in coming to fruition. Absolutely, James, and particularly from the sporting bodies. Now, the sporting bodies were not canvassed to, to create these policies. All these sporting policies were, um, bodies were banging on the doors because they had trans people playing in their comps all around the world. So first half, like, hats off to, to these people, these sporting groups. Unfortunately, though, when, when there's a trans policy or a trans law change, um, they always seem to go to one group, James. And, and I'll, I'll say this, it was Pride in Sport at this time. And Pride in Sport worked in these these policies for about 10 months or so in a clandestine fanner, um, manner. There was no transgender athlete involvement in it until the late stages. You know, I was handed a draft copy. So I don't see any major faults with too many of the policies. There's some that I would have given a Kirsty touch. But, hey, I'm not here to bag them. I'm here to say that they're all a great start. They're all working documents and... and um, like it's just uh, yeah, I'm just proud of what you know I, I, I've done um, over the last seven years because I made a commitment when we I, I told you this when we first spoke, James, when I got vilified on the field back in 2013 and accused of having AIDS and diseases, and I had my little trans friend on the side there that become suicidal, and I, I made that promise, you know, that I wouldn't give up until everyone can play the sport well. I think it's nearly time for me to retire, James, you know, like 
20 sports, nearly everyone can play the game. You know, I've, I've upheld my promise to my little trans friends. So, yeah, I'm really, really proud. Of course, you're in Broken Hill, which is an iconic part of remote Australia. Tell us about what your pandemic experience has been like there. Um, Broken Hill, when it first happened, we, we had two positive cases and they, they got rid of that very quickly. We've had not one case since. Everyone took it extremely, extremely serious. Um, for that first term, the, the kids all went out to school and or went away from school. But my experience being I've been a full-time man, James. So I've had my two darling granddaughters that I've been uh, before school and after school care. So, And they had to continue going through school right through the COVID because both their parents worked um, essential services. So I've been a COVID man. Um, it's, it's been the most magnificent time to spend with not many people, but the people that I have spent with has been the most quality time in the world. Um, I've got a lot done online and stuff with education, with the, the transport stuff. So, um, but you know what? I'm feeling really sorry for you. In, in mixed emotions for you, you people down in Victoria and Melbourne. Number one, I'm absolutely proud. Um, like I, I equate you guys to being like the Anzacs in the trenches and I do feel mixed emotions and guilty because here I am out here in Broken Hill and I've got, you know, billions of hectares and, and, and paradise. But when this is all over, I, I invite all those people in Victoria that done the right thing, come to Broken Hill, have a, you know, Kirsty tour and I'll shout you a drink and I'm really proud of you for doing, because you didn't just do the right thing for Melbourne. You did the right thing for us out here in Broken Hill. You kept us safe. So. Hats off to you, you know, like everyone in, in Melbourne should be getting the Premiership Cup this year. You all deserve it. Kirsty Miller, it's been absolutely wonderful to hear your voice again. Thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR. A pleasure. Thank you so much, James. 3CR. And we'll catch you next week on In Your Face. Taking us as Coldplay. Sparks.
face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook. <laughs> 